Theatre Royal has hit pause on their planned film screenings until further notice, but tasty pizzas are still available for pickup and home delivery from Wednesday through to Sunday, 4 till 8 p.m. Phone 54721196 to order. And the Takeaway Cafe continues to serve great coffee and delicious pastries Saturday and Sunday, 9 till 12. The Theatre Royal, Main FM sponsor. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Hello and welcome to The Quiet Carriage, the show all about books and authors. And hello to spring as well. We made it through another Goldfields winter and everything is starting to look a little bit brighter. And hopefully in Victoria, we've made it through lockdown as well. Officially, one week to go, but we'll wait to see what the state government has to say about that on the weekend. Today on The Quiet Carriage, it's a big episode. Later, I'll be reading from Thrill Me, the suspense collection out now via Glimmer Press. Uh, I've been reading from that for a few months now, and sadly this will be the last time that I will do so. And I'm going to sign off with a great friend of the show and a wonderful writer, Carmel Bird, who a lot of people around Castlemaine will know, uh, with her short story, The Comeback and the Pond of Dreams. First up, one of my books of the year has been from Scotland, though I might be a bit biased there, but it's The Young Team by Graham Armstrong, which is published in Australia through Pan Macmillan. So understandably, I'm delighted to be able to get him on the show today. First up, let's read a little bit about the novel, The Young Team. Azzy Williams is ready, ready to smoke, pop pills, drink wine, and ready to fight. But most of all, he's ready to do anything for his friends, his gang, his young team. Round here in the schemes of the forgotten industrial heartland of Scotland, your mates, your young team, they're everything. Azzy Williams is 14, a rising star. This is his life and he loves it. Azzy Williams is 17, he's out of control. Azzy Williams is 21, he'd like to leave it all behind. But a way out isn't easy to find. Inspired by the experiences of its author, Graham Armstrong, The Young Team is an energetic novel full of the loyalty, laughs, mischief, boredom, violence and the threat of life on these streets. It looks beyond the tabloid stereotypes to tell a powerful story about the realities of life for young people in Britain today. And here's a bit about the author. Graham Armstrong is a Scottish writer from Airdrie. His teenage years were spent within North Lanarkshire's gang culture. He was inspired to study English literature following his reading of Irvin Welsh's Trainspotting at just 16. Alongside overcoming his own struggles with drug addiction, alcohol abuse and violence, he defied expectation to read English as an undergraduate at the University of Stirling, where, after graduating with honours, he returned to study a Master's in Creative Writing. His debut novel, The Young Team, is inspired by his experiences. And I was very happy to catch up with Graham Armstrong on the phone from Scotland recently. Graham Armstrong, thank you so much for joining us today on The Quiet Carriage to speak about your debut novel, The Young Team. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Uh, this book really stuck out for me. One of the reasons, obviously I'm in Australia now, but one of the reasons is I'm from Lanarkshire, where the book is set. I'm from a place that you'll know very well, Hamilton. Yeah. Um, where are, your book's set in Airdrie. Where, where are you based these days? Um, I was living in London, but I've actually just, I just came back before this virus kicked, so I'm, I'm staying with family back in, uh, in Airdrie. Okay, yeah. So I'm back where the, the book was set. Yeah, right, right. I, I, I love the book. Congratulations on it. I think for a debut, it's a, it's a huge piece of work. I 
I love the realistic depiction of Scotland. I think in Australia, from my experience being here, we have a sort of idyllic kind of stereotypical view of Scotland, you know, like Braveheart, golf, whiskey, that sort of thing. But I think what people don't really realize is that, you know, gang crime, knife crime, you know, the stats are horrific. Alcoholism as well, particularly among young people. And the standard of living as well, in some parts, not all, but in some parts, particularly parts like the east end of Glasgow. I remember I read a statistic, it's up there with um, comparable to like Baghdad. I mean, so I love that Watson old depiction. How much of this book is based upon your own personal experience? Um, it's a question I'm asked a lot. Um, and see, to be honest with you, it's very, very close to my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends will often say, what character am I? You know, and I laugh and I always say the same. I just don't think about you that much, you know, and it would be strange to imagine your friends revolving in this fictional universe. Um, But what I would say is that everything in the young team is inspired by stuff that I've experienced. Now I went to school in Coatbridge as well as Airdrie. I was expelled from high school halfway through, so I did three years in each school in each town. Um, So in Coatbridge's gang culture was much more um, serious and much more violent than Airdrie. Right. So it's it's a kind of blend of those experiences. Right, right. The what, setting is very much Airdrie. Yeah, right. What sort of feedback have you had from people in the area and people you knew, like, growing up? Uh, great feedback, to be honest. A lot of people who were involved in this life are not um, consumers of literary fiction. You know, I knew that when I started out. But I recorded the audiobook. And that's been released, so it's myself narrating it, and people are actually consuming it much more from the typical backgrounds who wouldn't read, you know. Mm. Um, so it opens, it opens up, but the feedback's been great. You know, they feel seen, they feel represented. That's very important in communities that are deprived. Mm. Um, lots of these guys will have never um, picked up a book, you know, and the fact that places they know and their experiences, you know, and... and a literary fiction work is, is, is really powerful for them. Mm, mm. Do you still keep in contact with the same people you did when you were growing up? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, not so much the Coat Bridge uh, contingent, but the Airdrie ones, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fri- you know, they, they feel like family. Yeah. Um, these people. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a big question, but how do we break that cycle of drink? drugs, violence, knife crime in these like sort of low socioeconomic areas. I mean, in Australia, in no way are we immune to this. But whenever I visit Scotland, drink seems to be such a bigger part of culture there. You know, you have a pub on every corner. They practically give away alcohol in the supermarket. How do how does society, how do you break free of that? It's a massive question. Um, <laughs> and no, no, it's okay. It's, you know, it's one I'm asked often. How do we stop young men joining gangs, Graham? Um, yeah. And I always, you know, <laughs> you almost laugh. But the, uh, the reality is that the Violence Reduction Unit in Glasgow, um, you know, cycle back to 2005, we were murder capital of Europe. This was one of the most dangerous places to be a young man. Um, and that's, that's when the book starts, 2004, and that was my experience. But what the Violence Reduction Unit say is a tagline almost is that you know, all these behaviours happen because of a lethal absence of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and that phrase is one that I've borrowed in talks and it's one I talk about. You know, and, and we ask questions like, why do, why do kids, why do young men from the, the most socioeconomic challenging backgrounds go to jail? Mm-hmm. Why don't we ask why middle and upper class kids don't go to jail? Because there's your answer, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I just think that's a much more illuminating way to look at it. Like, we know poverty is our driver of violence. Um, how, how do we cure poverty? You know, the great work set on poverty, you always feel a bit hopeless to me because we can't cure poverty, you know, and um, it's just Keynesian economics. There's always going to be haves and have-nots, and there always has been. Mm-hmm. But I think if we present to young men and women um, choices about quality of life, and quality of life is important because we always say, you know, get a job, get a house, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But it's quality of life that prevents people from these higher um, echelons of society from, from committing offences, you know, and pursuing these destructive behaviours. How do we do that? It's very challenging. Mm-hmm. But that's the cha- that is the challenge, you know, that's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. Have I got this right? You quit drink and drugs in 2012. Was it age 20? Um, I stopped taking drugs um, at, twen- at age 21, yeah, so in 2012. 
I drank for another four years, but wow. then I, I chose to go teetotal as well. So I've, I've not consumed any alcohol in four years, and I'm um, eight years drug-free on Christmas Day. Living in Scotland, and you know, you say you see the sort of same people that you used to. How has that been challenging for you to re- to remain sober? Um, not really. Um, and I, <laughs> that's a whole story, you know. But I, I found faith, you know, that Christmas, and I stopped using drugs, and I think that definitely saved my life, you know. And that was a kind of anchor that I built upon, and it was, um, it was a solid rock, you know. Uh, so I was never tempted to go back. And choosing to stop drinking was a huge, huge decision for, for a guy at 24 years old, yeah. um, especially in Scotland, but it was, mm-hmm. it was a crucial one for me. Um, and my friends still use alcohol and drugs. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm around that sometimes, but I'm, I'm not personally tempted. Was writing this a form of therapy for you? I think it was cathartic in a way, yeah. Um, you were going back almost in an academic way to then challenge, you know, lots of the things you'd experienced. Um, it was tough as well, you know, you were really dredging your soul at points, especially with the mental health stuff, the, um, the violence, suicide, you know, they're the heavy topics and, and addiction obviously is a massive one. Um, and bits, the bits were really challenging to write, you know, and not particularly happy. There's a lot of sorrow in the young team, mm. but um, it was the kind of gateway to my future, you know. I, I studied English, you know, it, it seemed like a natural progression to put my past and my future together and that, you know, the young team was the outcome of that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the possibility of becoming a role model through this? Does that feel pressure for you? Um, I think it's really good, to be honest with you, because I was someone who took from my community, you know, I was um, always in trouble, I was a gang member, I was a drug addict, all the labels we put on young men, I was all of those, you know, and people often say, they try to absolve me by saying, you just got in with the wrong crowd, and I say, that's not true, I was one of the wrong crowd, mm. you know, and now I'm one of the right crowd, you know, I'm, and someone laughed and asked me recently, you know, how does it feel to stand next to cops, you know, and, and you know, do you get any hassle from old friends, and I, I laughed, and I said, Sometimes there's, there's comments made, yeah, because you're on the other side now. But I'm very proud to be on the other side, you know, and to contribute. So, so yeah, there is pressure, but I think it's just a case of you need to be above reproach, you know. Mm-hmm.
there we heard Blur with Sing. And now we return to my interview with author Graham Armstrong. So you had a bit of a, you know, colourful background, it'd be fair to say. Were you always a mm. big reader during that period? Not really, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was your average West of Scotland young man, you know, I never, I, I read a lot when I was a kid, you know, and um, the Guardian asked me which which kids' books, and I, th- I talked about Goosebumps, you know, and the guy laughed, and I thought, oh, great. that was important, because see young men, they don't read stereotypically, you know, um, so Goosebumps, the little mini horror series by Ariel Stein just got me totally enthralled, I loved all that, mm. um, and I still love horror stuff as I've grown up, you know, mm. um, but that was the gateway, you know, and then I st- when I was a young, young teenager, I started reading um, crime fiction, you know, so Michael Conley's Urban, uh, sorry, the Ian Rankin, Yes. You know, and uh, that was the kind of foundation. That was the kind of board set, if you want. And then, you know, four years, five years later, when I was at the worst of the worst, when I was 16, my friends were starting to die, you know, heroin addiction, serious violence, it was murders. Um, you know, I was very lucky that I got all put train spotting in my hands, you know, and that, that yeah. changed my life. Yeah, yeah. And when did you realise you could write? I started, you know, I started writing um, bits and pieces when I started uni, I think. They say you're a product of the environment, and that's true in gangs, but it's also true when you're in a university setting. You know, I started putting down little stories. I wrote a kind of crime fiction. It wasn't up to much, um, you know, but that, that gave me a, an idea and a kind of practice run, I suppose. But then when I, in 2012, sorry, 2013, when I just started writing the young team and I was in withdrawal, and I was... I was socially distancing myself from, from old friends and gangs. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I had that background and I thought, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to write this. Um, but I realised at the end it was going to be tough. Um, and I, I didn't realise it would take eight years and I certainly didn't realise it would be so successful, you know. Yes. And how, how did you get discovered over there? I mean, is it, is it sort of the path is it over there through, through lit mags, through competitions? Like, how, how did it... How I, d- I didn't go that route. Um, I, I was always very stubborn um, that the young team, if it was going to go at all, because of the way it's written in dialect, because of the subject matter, it would need to go to London, it would need to go big or not go at all. So I just did the real traditional route. I, I did applications, submissions... I did 300 and I got 300 rejections, you know, and then almost number 300 said, yeah, we're interested. 300? It was, so it was like, yeah, 300. And that took all the way from 2013 to 2018 to get a breakthrough. So it was five years of fruitless um, constant submission. Wow. So the book was actually written when you were quite young, seven years ago. I, I, yeah, I wrote most of it when I was 21 to 23. Wow. It's incredible. I'm 29 now, so... Um, but it's matured, you know, and it, obviously it's, uh, it, used to, it was actually written as three novels and I, and I combined it into one mm-hmm. and cut it. So it was, it was uh, what you have read of the young team is only 40% of what was the young team. Right. Um, so it was a massive project. Yeah. And was it you who did that cutting or was it an editor? Um, most of it was me, but then when I finally did get signed by an agent, he said, I need the immediate commitment to cutting 50,000 words or before we even talk. Because oh, um, yeah. it was just so long, it was like Lord of the Rings of, of the early <laughs> young teams, you know. So it, was, it really was that long. It was super long. Right. Um, and you know, there was an element to kill your darling. Some of that stuff was good. Some wasn't. You know, less is often more. So yeah. Uh, you read your own audiobook, and there's not many authors, I think, that actually do that. But having listened to your audiobook, I could not imagine anyone else doing it that kind of justice. Was there any sort of debate to bring in someone else in to do it? No, there wasn't actually. And they, they kind of laughed and said, you know, because of the dialect, there's, mm. you're pretty much it. I know other places make the audition and they'll, you know, they'll audition uh, the pros and then they'll ask you to do it. But they just said, no, it's, it's got to be you. So I did it. Um, it was it was really tough. It was it was t- hard work doing the audiobook. Yeah, yeah. But um, hopefully it's opened the door to lots of young men who wouldn't pick up a book, you know. So very valuable. Great, it's great. So you finished the book seven years ago. What have you been doing yeah. <laughs> during that time apart um, from editing your book, of course? I worked six days a week in the motor trade. Um, so I sold cars. Yeah, yeah. So I sold cars. I worked in sales environments, very, very busy. Worked six days a week, long hours, and then my seventh day was usually book work. So mm-hmm. I worked loads. 
to be honest. Yeah. Uh, that was in Glasgow and Stirling, and then I moved to London as well. So I lived down there for two years with um, an old partner. So and then I just came back before this launched. Yeah, right, right. And am I saying this right that you are doing a criminal studies PhD? Correct. I was doing that, but I've actually stalled that for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I had had committed to doing it, but mm-hmm. honestly, see with the um, with the commitments to the creative side, I just honestly, I'm just drowning in work. It was just too much, yeah. and I really want to commit to doing that. But you can't kind of part time do a full time PhD. So I'm going to go back and do that absolutely. Um, the doors never closed. I don't think with that, but um, it's not the right time. So maybe yeah. the year after next. Right, right. So are you writing full time at the moment this year? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I'm in a kind of catch twenty two, you know, I'm not sure if I'm gonna to return to London. Um just with the pandemic it's kinda of mm-hmm. making planning more difficult, you know, at the moment. But I um I think I've got unfinished business down there, you know. I'd like to go back to London, like to embrace that a bit more. I was working constantly down there last time. I didn't really get the London experience. Mm-hmm. So I think I would like to go back. Mm-hmm. All right. And what is it you're working on at the moment? Is it connected to the young team? Yeah, so I'm doing, um, well, it's, it's not, it's number two. They're, they're, they're succinct. You know, Raveheart is my second work. And right. it's trying to capture, we touch on dance music and raves and the young team. That was very, you know, as in the, the, the gang went to two raves, but we went to 22. You know, it was a huge, huge part of um, growing up here. So the next book is set completely around the raves. Um, it's it's a comedy. This one it's much lighter hearted. It's like Kevin and Perry go large versus Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, good it's um, it's a different a tone shift, you know. It's recognisable as as me. It's still written in dialect, but a different voice and a different character and a different purpose, you know. Mm-hmm. The young teams to get people to think, but the rave arts just to get people to celebrate, dance music, and laugh, and enjoy. Right, right. And you got a publisher for that? Uh, not yet. No, no. I've I'm, I've just finished my submission. That's what I've been really pushing on uh, lately. Get the first three and get the kind of package done. Yeah. Um. But um, I'm halfway through that one, so I've got another 40,000 words to go. Right. But it's exciting. I'm enjoying that, you know, and it's been so long since I was in that creative space, actually um, writing new material and in, in, in that dream, you know, state when you're you're dreaming up new stuff rather than you're editing. So oh, it's, it's fun. Isn't it? Yeah, much, much more fun than editing, definitely. Yeah. Moving ahead, can you see yourself being a novelist or will you get drawn towards criminal justice? Um, I think I'll, and that's another reason on the PhD, I think I'm going to go back and do an English PhD. I feel like, um, you know, I specialised in English. I did an undergraduate in English, an honours degree, and then I did a master's degree in English. I feel like if I do a criminology PhD, I'm almost crashing it. You know, I've got lived experience of criminology, um, and I'm very passionate about working in the community and doing bits. Um, But I think... Don't outwork out with your your capability, you know. Um, so I'm I'm passionate about doing the work, but you know I'm an English student and, and graduate, so that's what I'm going to do. I think that's brilliant. And have you ever made it down under? No, I haven't. No, I've never been to the US either. I've, I think I kind of foregoed my my early twenties traveling time for doing this book and working. Right. Um, I'm planning to do that in my thirties. You know, I've got big plans for my thirties. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a Canadian. I'm a Canadian citizen. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah, my sister's in the in the process of applying for passports. So I might go uh, over that way. That's a fantastic. Um, place. Yeah, I went there last year. Yeah, my dad was my dad was Canadian. So um, right. so that's that's cool. I fancy that, but I might I might make it down under at one point. I had friends that were out there and they loved it. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, it'll be amazing to see you down here at some point. Maybe at one of the the book fests, if you ever get the chance. We'll have to leave it there, but but Graham Armstrong, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Your book is- my pleasure, thanks for having us. Your book is out now via Pan Macmillan down in Australia, and also Audible, which we can hear your dulcet tones reading the book. Could you leave us with a song selection? Yeah, we'll go for one that's topical, so the drugs don't work with the verb. Very apt. Graham Armstrong, thank you so much. Many thanks.
All this talk of getting old It's getting All this talk of getting old It's getting me down, my love Like a cat in a bag Waiting to drown This time I'm coming down And I hope you're thinking of me you lay down on your side Now the trucks don't work They just make you worse But I know I'll see your face again Now the trucks don't work They just make you worse But I know I'll see your face again But I know I'm on a losing streak Cause I passed down my old street And if you wanna show Then just let me know And I'll sing in your ear again Now the trucks don't work They just make you worse But I know I'll see your face again This baby
For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. And there we heard The Drugs Don't Work by The Verve. And that was a song selection by Graham Armstrong, who was on the line talking to us about his novel, Young Team. Next up, I'm going to be reading from the book Thrill Me. That's a book of suspenseful short stories, which I've been reading for the last few months, edited by Lynette Washington. And this will be sadly the last month that I'll be reading from it. And I thought I'd go out on a bit of a high and read a story by a person who'd need no introduction to our show if you listen to it regularly, Carmel Bird, a bit of a Castlemaine local legend and the author last year of the novel Field of Poppies. Today I'm going to read the short story The Comeback and the Pond of Dreams, which is from the Thrill Me Collection. Hope is the thing with feathers, Emily Dickinson. All this has been a very long time coming. I wish that I could speak to you from the future, a time when I will exist again in the corporeal medium. Meanwhile, consider me as the spirit of the species. While I am replete with hope that the attempts to manifest me will be truly successful, I acknowledge there can be no certainty in these matters. My existence is in the hands of the deities, the magicians, the technicians, the scientists, and probably a few other categories of specialists. These beings are all devoted, diligent, and in many cases gifted with the light of what I might call genius. However, as you will realize, I am a difficult case. They say it is proving harder to resurrect me than it is to bring back the Thylenicus Sinophallus. I love the scientific names for things, my own being Raphus, Colacactus. I am much better known as Dodo. I am a creature of mystery. I am an enigma. Perhaps this fact is a great part of my charm and fascination. And then there's the matter of my non-existence. Some people have chosen to believe that I have never existed. That too is a cause for fascination. What price? The unicorn. One of the most important specialists in worldwide research is Dr. Kenneth Ridgstick at the University of Amsterdam. You can find Ken online at his site called Dodo Alive, which is a pretty good and optimistic name, you would agree. He and his colleagues investigate the DNA of dodo bones. Imagine. It was the Dutch, by the way, who set the extinction machine in motion, in my case. Long, long ago, the Arab and Portuguese sailors visited my island. Then, towards the end of the 16th century, Dutch expeditions were out and about on the briny deep, a glint in their nautical eye, seeking trade throughout the East Indies. In 1598 AD, Dutch ships visited the island, and 1601 reports spoke of the dodo. The sailors generally didn't like us as a meat, except for our stomachs and our breasts, apparently. They preferred eating the cuckoo dirtle coves, dirtle doves, which seems reasonable. In our stomachs, they found the stones we used use to help us digest our own food. I remember the stones. Most subsequent reports mention the difficulty people had in cooking and eating us. No problem catching us, no problem at all. And all kinds of artists simply love to draw and paint dodos. Not always from life, and they still do. The spirit of the species and the image of the species, everywhere you look, there are many, many copies of copies of copies. 
The truth will out when the comeback is complete. By 1690, there will be no dodos left alive on the planet Earth. Sad face. It might be a bit of a race between me and Thyla for the comeback, but we will both get there. Or should I say here, in the end, or the beginning. Breathless excitement. There is something timeless about the times I am discussing, so you will have to forgive me if I appear to go back and forth, or round and round in weaving, wandering circles. When I say I, you must understand that this first-person pronoun refers, as I have said, to the spirit of the species. And if you look at the map of the world, you will see that Thyla and I used to be, are, separated geographically by more or less open sea. There was Thyla, sometimes known as the Tasmanian stripy tiger, roaming around Van Diemen's land, looking for prey, while I was happily marching about like some cheerful swan of Mauritius, gleefully swallowing quantities of fruits, seeds, nuts, bulbs, and roots, and generally mixing with flamingos, giant tortoises, lizards, and parrots, and such like. It was a pretty sight. I had no predators, cue human beings. Of course, Thyla lasted longer than I did back then, but fizzled out in the Hobart Zoo in 1936. I imagine that you might first might have first encountered the idea of me and the work of Lewis Carroll, who even identified himself with me, and who showcased me as a character in his great book of 1865 AD. He used to visit my tragic remains, a foot, a head, mummified, in the Museum of Sciences in Oxford, and these vestiges stirred his imagination. As why wouldn't they? Accompanying these sorry scraps of the physical life of the species was a portrait of me painted in 1626 by Roland Savory, a Dutch master of the still life. You would almost certainly recognise his glorious bowls of flowers with their sprinklings of lovely little zippy lizards and insects. Forgive me, won't you, if I get carried away with the adjectives. His picture of me was the inspiration for the later interpretation by Sir John Tenniel. It was the Tenniel image illustrating the story of Lewis Carroll that rocketed me to a kind of fame and placed me as the poster bird for the extinction industry. I beat Thyla to that by quite a long way, didn't I? Thyla became the go-to extinct mammal towards the end of the 20th century and in a great, great flurry of scientifical excitement, they decided to make an attempt at bringing us poor old creatures back to face the 21st century music. Cue crashing cymbals and groaning organs. I will be needing gendered pronouns in a minute, and I confess I don't know whether the spirit of Thyla is male or female, but I can tell you I was, am, trouble with tenses here again, female. A fact that I imagine is useful to the work of the scientificators, should they truly want to crank up a new branch on my family tree. How can a spirit have a gender? Search me. Of course, it may be possible, after the first comeback of the species, for that comeback to be cloned, and for the clone then to undergo a change of gender. I'm sorry, but I don't have all the answers, and I must trust in the skills and imaginations of the deities and magicians I mentioned earlier. They once did some funny work with sheep, and also with the ears of mice. They're mighty clever, you know. For one thing, they grow human beings in glass dishes, I believe. I hear that one swallow does not make a summer. That makes sense, doesn't it? A new dodo will be thrilling, but two will be necessary if dodos had to make the full necessary comeback to rollicking, racy vitality. No glass dishes for us. Of course, I am nothing like a swallow. No streamlined darting bluebird or happiness me. I should say I am the antithesis of a swallow. After a good deal of scientifical discussion and argument, it was decided that I am, was, a giant flightless bird of the pigeon or dove kind, a sort of earthbound waddling holy ghost. I'm a little bit afraid I might end up as a comebackatoo or some such. That reminds me to tell you that dodos murmur like well-mannered pigeons. Really sweet and low and comforting. In my corporeal manifestation, I am 30 inches tall, and I weigh about 50 pounds. My head and bill are enormous, my wings minute, and my tail feathers truly splendid and nicely curly. 
I am very proud of my tail feathers, by the way. You can tell. My legs are short, my claws large, scaly and powerful. My colours are a lovely grey, mingled with some yellow and green. So you see, nothing like a swallow. If you must know, the colours are somewhat nondescript, or, you might say, subtle. I walk in an upright fashion, and I possibly resemble a swan, yes? Very early on, the whole island was called Swan, but it's not that they are going to write a ballet called Dodo Lake anytime soon, or is it? As you will see, this idea is not completely out of the question. For one thing, people are turning into robots as we speak. Read on. Hope, as the great Emily Dickinson said, is the thing with feathers. You'll be wondering how the foot and the head ended up on display in Oxford. I will explain. In the early 17th century, an Englishman called John Trandescant, the Elder, collected a vast number of strange and rare objects from near and far. He opened the first public museum in England, the Museum Trandescantanium. Two of the rare objects were, as you guessed, the dodo head and foot, which later were displayed in Oxford, and exposed to the gaze and imagination of Lewis Carroll, who advertised me to the world as the creature that said, everybody has won and all must have prizes. I don't believe I ever really said that, but I might have. Perhaps I have forgotten. It's been a while. It doesn't really sound like me, though. You will also be wondering about where I came from, and when and how I faded out to the point where all you have are weird old scraps and the spirit of the species. Well, to tell you the truth, these days there are bones, even a full skeleton. However, I believe a comeback requires a bit of soft tissue, but more of that later. For now, think exploration. Think sailors. Think cats, rats, pigs and monkeys. Invasive species, yes. Destroying the habitat and eating the eggs and scaring us out of our feathers. Are you sitting comfor comfortably? So think long ago. Think eight million years ago. Think Africa. Think ocean. Think volcano, and vroom, whoosh, kaboom, great disturbance of the waters. Then, there you have the island, 1,200 miles off the southeast coast of Africa, in the Indian Ocean, my island home. Today you will know it, since 1992, as the Republic of Mauritius, famous for its beaches, lagoons, reefs, and sunsets. In the 16th century, the Dutch ships came, and long before the sun had set in the 17th century, Raphus Kukulakis had been removed from the island forever, removed from the face of the very earth itself. Extinct. Last seen, in fact, in 1662. In the 19th century, a few bits and pieces remained to be marvelled at, and also subjected to a certain amount of searching scientifical research. But now I bring you to the Pond of Dreams. You have been very patient. And here's a great new term for you. Subfossil material. The story is hotting up. So is the planet, of course. Hence, bringing me and Thyla back from our extinctions might be just a luxurious and eccentric exercise of dancing in the darkest, darkest, gloom, dark, dark. The Pond of Dreams is a natural storage facility in which are found the preserved bones and sometimes even soft tissue of animals, including dodos, in an, an exotic medium where bacterial activity is minimal. I enjoy my borrowings from the scientific haters. This is your subfossil material, as promised. The pond is more of a swamp than a pond, really, and is located close to the sea on the southeast coast of Mauritius. In 1865, the same year that John Tenniel's picture of a dodo was published in Lewis Carroll's book, Q Coincidence. After searching for 30 years among the dreams of the pond, a Mauritian schoolmaster named George Clark finally found, in the very deepest part of the water, the preserved bones of dodos. Quiet, meditative notes on a silver flute. Collection of our bones from these waters has continued, and examples are now found in museums all over the world. The only known complete skeleton was assembled by Louis Etienne Thiriou, a quiet and somewhat mysterious Mauritian barber, yes, barber, who died in 1917. Quite recent in the scheme of things. The scheme of things, I love that phrase. 
This skeleton is kept in the Natural History Museum in the port in Port Louis, Mauritius. Nobody even knows whether the barber found the bones in the Pond of Dreams or somewhere else. However, Kenneth Ridgesdyke and his colleagues from Dodo Alive searched the waters of the pond as recently as 2006, and they found a treasure trove of bones. Subfossil. I enjoy saying that. From the Horniman Museum in London, you can download a model of a dodo to a 3D printer. Is that what you want to do? It's a long, long way from the Pond of Dreams. A long way from the times when I wandered along the warm, wet, glacious greenery, watching the skinny flamingos, bypassing the big old turtles, catching glimpses of bright parrots on the wing, swallowing fruit. There was a drought, you know, and thirsty and desperate, we all crammed into the lovely waters of the Pond of Dreams, where our bones had been sweetly preserved like cherries in a bottle of syrup from for 4,000 years. Pause to absorb some of that information. I have given you the faintest whispering spiderweb scintilla of an impression of the history of the species so far. It is safe to say there is an infinity of information available in what is called out there. The next step is the comeback. Cockle-doodle comeback. It won't be long now. Stay tuned. Hope is a wonderful feathered thing. I remember the pond. I remember the stones. I remember all the dreams, the parrots, the rats. Stay tuned. And I tend to imagine there is a choreographer somewhere in an upper room busily devising Dodo Lake. Oh yes, cue the new Tchaikovsky. Dodo Lake, pond of dreams, here comes the past. Dodo Lake, starring live on stage the comeback, Raphus Kalkulactus. Believe me, it's going to happen. Oh yes, it's going to happen. Stay tuned. And that was the short story, The Comeback and the Pond of Dreams by Carmel Bird. And that's from the short story collection, the Suspense short story collection, Thrill Me, out now via Glimmer Press and available at all good bookshops, edited by Lynette Washington. And a big thank you to the publishers there for allowing us to read that. And an apology for me for butchering some of those Latin and French terms in the short story. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. You are listening to 94.9 Main FM, and that's all we have time for today in The Quiet Carriage. A big thank you to Carmel Bird and editor Lynette Washington for allowing me to read from Thrill Me, the suspense collection out now via Glimmer Press. Go and get your copy now. It's been such fun reading that for the last three months. There's so many great stories in there. And also a big thank you to Graham Armstrong, who was also my guest today, speaking about his novel, The Young Team, out now via Pan Macmillan. Next week, we'll be checking in with the Wheeler Centre, and it's also time for the TQC Book Club. I've been Paul J. Laverty. I'm across all the socials, and this has been The Quiet Carriage. All old episodes are available on Spotify and wherever people listen to podcasts. A huge happy Father's Day to my father, and also to all fathers out there for Sunday. I'm going to leave you now with Talking Heads with their track, This Must Be The Place. Until next week. 
keep safe, keep well, and keep reading.
Mount Alexander Community Enterprise is Bendigo Bank's local partner. Together they provide financial assistance to local clubs and groups to support community projects. Locals helping locals. By choosing Bendigo Bank or Bendigo Telco and tagging your account as a community enterprise supporter, you can help continue their great work. The cost to you is zero dollars, but the benefit to the community? Priceless. Make sure you check them out at communitygrants.com.au or ask today to link your accounts. Mount Ace, Main FM sponsor. Hey you, what me? Yes you, listen to the all new Record Low Radio Show Radio Show. Now with all new improved formula. Easy to attach, fits all ears, easy to swallow. Clear, crisp, new, staggering stereo sound. You've never heard anything like this before. Ha ha, available to you at a low, low, record low cost of zero dollars. Yes, zero dollars. Tune in 8pm till 10pm on Tuesday night. What else would you be doing at that time? Absolutely no money back guaranteed. I'm Lisa Testers, the Federal Member for Bendigo. My team can assist with any Federal Government matter, including Medicare, the NDIS and Centrelink. I want our region to have a strong education sector, secure jobs that people can count on, thriving local business and an inclusive, connected community. It's an honour to represent the people of Bendigo and Central Victoria, both locally and in our Federal Parliament. Authorised by Elchester's Australian Labor Party Victorian branch, Bendigo. Lisa Chester supporting Main FM.